This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Jim Lindsay. So he's the author of this incredible book, The Sniper, The Untold Story of the Marine Corps' Greatest Marksman of All Time. So this is a biography of United States Marine Corps sniper Chuck Mowinney, who served in Vietnam at the age of 18. And get this. In just 16 months of active duty in Vietnam, he had 103 confirmed kills with 216 probable kills. Okay. So very, very incredible guy had an incredibly, I'm just, I'm kind of at a loss for words because as you're reading this guy's biography, it's just, it almost seems impossible the things that he was able to do, but he was in a very target rich environment and he was doing great work and he was basically having to work every single day. And there were different points in his time in Vietnam where he was averaging four five, six kills a week that were confirmed. And, you know, we get into this podcast with, with Jim Lindsay, who wrote this biography about, you know, the difference between a confirmed kill and a probable kill, but it's a very interesting story how Jim Lindsay even got a hold of Chuck Mowinney and how it even came to be that he would write a biography about him because, you know, Chuck is, you know, later on in life, you know, he's in his seventies, I believe. And he just never really talked about it for years and years and years. Even his wife didn't know about his time in Vietnam, but he kind of got outed in a book that was released a while back. And then he started doing some documentaries and doing some public appearances and kind of embracing it. But a lot of people, myself included, thought Carlos Hathcock, like that's the guy that is the most famous and the greatest Marine sniper, maybe sniper overall of all time. And then it came out that he had, Chuck had about 10 more confirmed kills than Carlos Hathcock did. But this book breaks down, you know, his, his upbringing, how he got into the military, his time in Vietnam. And when I talked to Jim, you know, we're talking through some of those things. And then he also describes the, the greatest story, I guess, in terms of something that he was able to accomplish in his discussions with him, not only kind of, you know, cracking through the outer shell of Chuck, who's a very boisterous guy, got a big personality, getting him to be serious about these stories. But one of the most famous stories about Chuck Mowinney is whenever he shot 16 Viet Cong with 16 bullets in under 30 seconds. And if he didn't do that, guys, there would have been untold numbers of United States Marines that were killed. And so we're going to get into a lot of detail. I really enjoyed my time with Jim. So without further ado, let's get into it. Jim Lindsay, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks. Thanks for asking me. I'm having, I'm happy to have you on today, but you're doing something actually kind of cool that I didn't know and I didn't intend to ask you about. You're actually in your, I, I guess your RV or whatever right now. Are you driving around the United States? Is that what's going on, Jim? Yeah, I, I'm pulling this little camper. It's a 2017, so I'm not living, I'm not like living in the brush or anything, but I'm pulling up with a 150 Ford pickup. And I've always wanted to see America, and I've seen a lot of the West End because I live in Oregon. But I decided it uh, better to get it done, and I took off and uh, I took off in the middle of September, late. I had so much going on that I finally just got in and took off. Went across the North, down through uh, Michigan, saw the Ford stuff, the museums, and went up the Erie Canal, went up to Maine, caught the flowers, the leaves just falling just right, and had a lobster on the dock. And then I went down through the Appalachian Mountains, Kentucky, and into Nashville, and I spent 10 days in Nashville and 
doing all the cowboy stuff I should have done 50 years ago. <laughs> there you go. Well, hey, well, hey, at some point you got to drive across the, the Great Plains and, and come through Oklahoma. And if you do, make sure make sure you hit me up. But one thing that's uh, very indicative of you, and obviously it's one of the main reasons that we had you on today, is because you are a writer. And so you've written several books, and we're going to talk about The Sniper here in just a second. But I guess what, what got you into writing? Because when you talk to people, a lot of people don't like doing it. Well, that, um, it's kind of a it's almost evil. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you, I think, I think I could make that, you know, and you've probably said that before. I think I could draw that picture. Or, well, yeah. uh, and I've read a lot, read all my life of read novels and uh, nonfiction. And so I started thinking, I think I could do that. <laughs> and I wrote a, uh, a couple of articles in Hot Rod magazines and they took them. And mm. And then I wrote a novel, and I had some help from a gal who was uh, had just graduated from college and had a summer off, and, and it did pretty well. It's called Little Bastard, and uh, I learned an awful lot from it. And then I I got a, I, I took a class in writing because I wanted to write uh, another book, and I met the lady that was a teacher and instructor is. Uh, She's close to my age, and she's she's very good. Her name's Lil, and I, I I knew I needed her, and so I I got her interested in the book, and so she we, we kind of took it together. And she is good about the mechanics. It's the there's so many things you want in about a book that you don't realize if it's a good author, you don't realize this is all going on back behind those words, and it's all about all the structure and. Um, the prose, I had an out, I found out I had a natural voice. So I, and that's when it really clicked then. Uh, but I needed the mechanics of it. I didn't take, I didn't go to college and, um, and I'm still learning and she's still whipping me. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, well, that's good. So a lot of people wouldn't get out of their comfort zone and learn everything. They're like, ah, if, if it doesn't come naturally to me, I don't want to do it. So you, so you became a writer and that really led to, well, I guess in a certain way to you meeting Chuck Moeni, right? And that's how he pronounces his last name or Moeni, right? Moeni. Yes. Um, Moeni. And so I've heard, I've heard it pronounced about a thousand different ways, but obviously, as I said in the introduction, you know, the most lethal uh, United States Marine Corps sniper of all time. And we'll, we'll get to kind of how that all went down. But how did you even come across him? Okay. Uh, I've, I farmed all my life. That was my major. My brother and I grew up on a farm and we loved farming. And and we took it to, uh, ended up acquiring a pretty sizable bunch of land. And for 20 years, I was in Eastern Oregon running a ranch that we owned there. And uh, that's when I met Chuck. And he was a, uh, he was working for the Forest Service. He's two years younger than me, um, and we both liked drinking beer. And sometimes before I'd go home in the afternoon, after I came into John Deere to get some parts or something, I'd go to the Idlehour Tavern, and he'd come in there after work. And he was a guy, kind of guy that you walk in and you think, and you and you're glad he's there. You know, he's so he's got so much charisma. Uh, he could be a movie star that kind of a guy he'd jump up and grab a chair for you and here have a beer and and then we talked and and then he came out of my place and hunted ducks and uh, but i had no idea i ever wanted to be a writer then and i had no habit had any idea that he'd done what he'd done i did we never talked about the military and 
it was when I got back home from the 20 years, I moved back to the other side of Oregon and I was sitting there watching TV one evening and, and there he was. And it was on, there was like a history channel or something. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's Chuck. I can't believe it. Well, he never told anybody about all this. Well, by mm -hmm. that time, I was getting interested in writing. I think I'd probably, yeah, I'd already got my first book published and it was doing pretty well. And so I, uh, I contacted him through some friends and he remembered me. And, uh, so he, I said, you know, yes, Chuck, I had no idea. And he just laughed. He, he's that kind of a guy. He's not, he, he makes light of everything. So, I said, I want to come see you. Okay. So he told me where to, and I, so I went over there and we visited and he, and he'd read my book and my first book and he liked it. And he, he was kind of that, the name of his little bastard. And he was kind of a little bastard in school. So I brought up the subject that, you know, somebody ought to be writing a book about you. And he, he said, well, a couple of guys tried and they both died and laughed, you know, and, so uh, as time went on, went back and forth and back and forth, I started, he, uh, he, he said, okay, let's do it. And I was, I, it was a huge undertaking for me to, to know where I was, I was going to have to delve into this guy's life, you know, about a lot of things, because I wanted to write a book, not about the gun or the bullets or the, the, or the number of kills, more or less, uh, more about the man that did it. What kind of a guy would, how, do, how would a guy, where would he grow up and what would he learn in school and how did he ever get to be the point of a man that could do that and have the will to do it? And he was kind of on the same track too. He, he wanted it, his life story. And so that's why the book starts out when he's just a little child. I think that that's uh, amazing how, how you got to talking with them. There's actually a funny quote because Chuck wrote the prologue of the book and this quote says this, I told him I had worked with an author out of Florida for five years and just when the book was about done, the guy had a heart attack and died. The book never got published. I told him I would never do another book. But here you are. He finally agrees. He says, yeah, let's go ahead and do a book. But he was very, very adamant. You talk about this in the book that he wanted all of his stories he told you all of his stories are true and he wanted them to be basically told through his eyes. He didn't want you to Hollywoodize it. He didn't want you to change any details to make it better for the, for the prose or for the narrative of the book. But it really started with just discussions that it was just you and Chuck sitting down probably with a couple of, of beers and just having these discussions. But how did you approach your discussions with Chuck? Because again, he's, he's a lighthearted guy. He likes to f have fun. He likes to do whatever. But he's talking about some really, really serious stuff. I'm glad you asked that because that was really big for me to uh, uh, talk about him killing somebody, you know. And and I asked him about that. I said, how's this going to go? Um, I said, I'm all in. On, I'm totally honest. I mean, it's part of my job. And, uh, and it's, more, it's even more my job writing a uh, biography, even in, in you know, even in a, writing a novel, the things have to be correct. Well, so uh, he had a, he was easy to talk to about that, and he, we would talk about. At, at first, 
I, you know, I, I took notes. I, I never, on the whole project, I probably met with him 12 times. And he lives 400 miles from me. It was quite an undertaking. But I never, ever used a recorder. And I just took notes. And then, uh, of course, then I'd go home and try to read them. Then I'd get back on the phone. and But he was always good about picking up the phone. Yeah. Well, no, it happened on a, you know, it was in the fall and it was a monsoon season. And he, and he had a, a good memory. I was really amazed at how he remembered the details. Starting out even clear back when he was four years old when the book starts and about how he he remembered the names of his friends and of his school teachers and of the, the uh, he uh, the, of his boss you know uh, he he worked part time after school and in, in uh, Lakeview Oregon and and then he when he got into the military and he got into the marine corps and the basic training he remembered uh, he re- remembered names you know of his commanding officers and mm. that sort of thing and then uh, his wife helped a lot with that. She did. Uh, she did a lot of research for him after he became famous, and uh, he never told anybody about this. He, you know, he never told me. Well, I never expected him to tell me. We never talked about that kind of thing when I knew him. But uh, he never told his wife that he was mm. that he did all that stuff. And it all came out when that book about him called "Dear Mom." came out and uh, it was his last spotter wrote the book and kind of outed him. And, uh, and then it was just a, it was a rush. Well, Jim, that that's actually something that's, you find it to be common with a lot of the guys for, uh, from Vietnam and the Korean war and the world wars and things like that. Aside from maybe their correspondence writing back and forth to family, they didn't really talk a lot about their exploits on the battlefield. And we kind of live in a modern era with the, with the GWAT. A lot of these people are writing uh, books and are, you know, making big public profiles off of the exploits that they did during warfare. It's interesting for me because I like seeing some of those things, but I, I guess from your perspective, you're hearing this guy say these things. He's telling you these these stories, and we'll get into some of the stories here in a second. Was there ever any concern from your end that Chuck was, you know, maybe telling tall tales? Because you know how it is. Like a guy catches a fish that's this big, but he tells everyone at the bar that's this big. Like I could barely pull it into the boat. Did you ever think that maybe he's kind of leading me on a little bit? I got a really good answer for that. Okay. He... He was out in the in the he was out in the field. Okay, it's been quite a while since I went through. And uh, him and his spotter, they were with a company, and there was a big two big helicopters come flying in, and some officers got out, real big shots. And while they were there, the the general or colonel, whoever he was, wanted Chuck to show him something about the area there. And Chuck had been there for so long. Um, and that it's uh, west of Denang, about twenty miles out in that uh, Arizona territory and mudflats. It, it's in the book. Anyway, all of a sudden there was these three NVA uh, soldiers out there, and and the general says, "Let's go get it the helicopter, and we'll chase them down." Chuck says. If we go after the helicopter, they'll be gone. He says, I'll just shoot them here. And that general says, I, 
nobody could shoot somebody that far away. So Chuck he laid out on a rock, you know, prone position and and shot one of them. And yet by that time he got that done, the other two had disappeared. And he told me, he said, I never told those guys, but the one I was aiming at isn't the one I hit. <laughs> And he, it was, a, and he, he laughed about it because it was, uh, but he told me, here I am, I'm writing a book. It never got in the book. I don't know. There are two or three things like that that didn't make it. I, I don't know. That was my fault, probably. But, uh, but he admitted to me that here's a, one of the best shots that he ever made. And he, and he hit, he, he, he got credit for the guy, but it wasn't the one he was shooting at. So I, I think he was just totally honest. And fact is, that was one of our problems. Like I dig and dig and into trying to get him to tell me now how did that feel when that happened, and how did that feel when you got your first kill and 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 you and here's a dead body that was just alive uh, ten minutes ago, and 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 uh, he was he never got emotional about it or. He said it was my job, and knowing him from doing his life story, everything he's ever did, has done, he did it. He did it the best he ever that he ever could, and uh, even at, when he went to work for the Forest Service, he became a he kind of became the boss pretty quick, and he rebuilt roads, and uh, he was really, of course, very good at hunting. Fishing, he likes fishing, and um, no, he's a he's a real guy. He's a and he's he, he's he's really fun to be around, and and he's a, he's just a, a really a cool dude. Yeah. Well, he seems to have that magnetic personality because I remember uh, you mentioned History Channel or something like that earlier. I think it was a history or discovery or something like that. That's where I first heard about him and some of his missions. And this was years and years ago. But it's again, it's just it's just something with these old timers. It's like they don't feel the need to stick their chests out and tell everybody what they did back when they were a teenager. But, you know, you you talk about in the book. And again, I don't, if I didn't mention the book, I mentioned it in the intro, but it's the sniper, the untold story of the Marine Corps greatest marksman of all time. And the thing about this book, and it'll be in the show notes, we're going to be just barely skimming the surface 30,000 foot view today. So you guys can go and check it out. But you go through what it was like for him growing up. He was a knucklehead. He was hard to control. He got into a lot of trouble. He actually wanted to join the military and had to do a little finesse with his paperwork so that he could get in without issue. And then he gets in, even though, you know, his mom was a little bit nervous. Obviously this was around the time when everyone's going to Vietnam, going to fight. He wanted to be in aviation, but then he ended up going the sniper route. You know, he was setting records and graduating top of his class with the sniper stuff because he was an absolute just he was, he was nailing just about every single shot. He wasn't having having trouble with the weapon systems. He wasn't having trouble with the scopes. He was just, it was like he was built for it. And then when he got to Vietnam, you detail this in the book. He was actually kept from being a sniper initially, and he was made to be a grunt. But I, I would assume that he would say this, and you would probably confirm it. The fact that he was kept from being behind the rifle initially when he got to Vietnam probably served him better because he was doing the duties of all the other Marines who were grunts, who weren't specialized. Would you say that he would agree with that sentiment, that he was glad he was a grunt before he was a sniper? In some way, I mean, I, th I think he would agree that it made him a better companion as a 
being a sniper later on, he understood what the grunts were going through. And uh, he, uh, he would help them. He didn't have to do anything. He was kind of special because he carried the long rifle. Him and his spotter were... They would be put on a plane or a helicopter, throw somebody else off. I mean, he, when you, you carry that rifle, that, that you just always go to the head of the line. Well, and so he would be out with uh, a company of like 60 or 120 men or something. And they would get a helicopter would land with supplies, mail and all that stuff. He would go, he'd go out and help unload. And he would... Uh, he did a lot of he's a lot of his kills were at night, and uh, when he got to, at first when he got a new company, he might be with one for a short period of time or maybe a few months. He would go around and introduce himself to everybody, and tell them, ask them what you know what they needed. It usually they were uh, somebody was uh, you know, sneaking up on them and throwing homemade bombs over the fence and that sort of thing. And um, so he got a lot of kills after dark, but he he knew what they went through and, he, he, uh, and how they just got tired. And they, they had these watches at night and awake in the daytime. And so he would actually take people's watches and let them sleep. Things like that that he offered to do that he wouldn't have had to have done. And... Um, and I think you're bringing up that point. It's important because that is one of the reasons. He was that way. I think he probably would have been that way anyway. But uh, And then he realized pretty quickly that if he didn't, he was going to get, he just wasn't going to make it. He, he ended up with the machine, with the big machine gun. and He watched two guys go down right there before he got it. And uh, so he got it, he got an opportunity to uh, to get into that sniper platoon in Anwa, and um, and he faked a toothache, and he got to go back behind into Anwa from the field, and that's where he went right straight to the sniper or the platoon, and 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 he had the records of what he had done. You know, he'd graduated first in class and all that, and they happened to need a guy right then, and they needed mm-hmm. a small. And he has that the kind of charisma. He he, he could talk a, a coon out of a tree. You know, he's that kind of a guy. So, so he ended up. And when then, the guy, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like he, you know, he ended up going in, and I mean, guys, you have to you have to remember, he went as he was eighteen when he went over there, but in just about sixteen months, I believe, was how long he spent in Vietnam. So he's not even technically legally able to to buy a beer yet. He had one hundred and three confirmed kills with two hundred and sixteen probable kills. And we don't have to get into all the X's and O's of, you know, how they do confirm kills versus probable and, and all these numbers. Um, but there was one particular story that is the first story I ever heard from of Chuck. And it was a story, again, you, you mentioned that night and a lot of people don't really understand how the, the nighttime, uh, you know, 
how that worked with these scopes and things like that. So maybe you can get into that. But he went to this area where he thought the Viet Cong was going to be trying to cross a river. He went to the shallowest point of this river and he set up with his spotter at this riverbank because if the Viet Cong were able to get through that area, it was going to be terrible for the Marines on the other side. It was going to create a really, really big problem for the Marines that were going to be behind him. So you can pick up the story from there because he did something pretty incredible in about 30 seconds. Okay. Um, he was with a company, one he really liked to be with. And uh, there was a monsoon coming in. You could just see it black, you know. It was gonna, mm. And here come a little airplane over. And they got to, and the guy on the airplane, the pilot, radioed down, saw the outfit, radioed down, said that there's a, a shitload of, of uh, NVA on the other side of this river, and they're get, he thinks they're getting ready to cross. And Chuck's outfit was in between them and Da Nang. And it was a big battalion. It was They were going to... They, um, they, looking back, Chuck says they were, they were, they were going to do something. They were going to Danang for some reason. So he volunteered to run down. He knew right where they'd cross because he'd been there for so long. So he took a sniper and he's, and they traded rifles. Chuck, uh, car- uh the, the one with the night scope on it is called a starlight scope. Is on an M. Uh, an M14 and uh, auto, you know, a little automatic carbine. So, uh, but with the cover of weather, it was going to be really marginal if he could see anything at all through that scope. And it's something that he invented about that time that picks up the light from the from the sky. So they get down there and they get ready and uh, where he thinks they're going to cross. And so then a a scout comes across, an NVA soldier, and he walks right up. And it, by the, I mean, it's dark, and he can hear him slosh, sloshing through the water. And he's carrying a rifle above his head. He can see through that scope. He can see. It's like looking through a Seven Up bottle. It's kind of green, you know. And uh, and this guy walks right out beside Chuck, and Chuck's and he's hide that they've picked out. And uh, and, and Chuck says, he was so close to me that he, you can hear the water dripping off him. Mm. And and the guy turned around and tur- looked around, and he looked like he was going to start walking back towards where the company was. And Chuck wasn't going to let him get between him and the company. So he re- he released the, the safety on his rifle, and he was going to plug him right there, dispatch him. So then the guy... Uh, just looking around, looking, there was elephant grass, you know, six, eight feet tall everywhere. And so he turns around and he went back across the river. Chuck figures they're, got, they're coming now. They're going to come as soon as, as soon as he gets back there. And within a half an hour, here they came. And they're walking through this river. And the river is, I've seen it. I, I was in Vietnam researching this book. And the river is very calm, but it's wide. And chest deep at that time that happened to be that night and they were coming across right where the scout had come and they were carrying their rifles and they had pith helmets and chuck waited until they started up the bank out towards him and he shot the first one and he went down and then shot the second one and went down and he shot 16 of them with this m14 um 
by then he'd he hadn't I think I'm 16 holes a few more rounds but by then it was getting out of hand and the, and the, the NVA didn't they were confused and they were milling and they were and Chuck knew and the, and the rifles from the other side they're starting to go off so he knew it was time to get to leave so him and his spotter just ran like maniacs back to the company and um, and he they they never crossed. They, they probably thought the whole damn Marine Corps was across there. So I don't know how many people he saved, but you're talking about what it takes to have a confirmed kill and a non-confirmed kill. He didn't get any credits for those 16 because those bodies floated, floated out, down the river out to the ocean. And uh, they found some bodies the next day, but they couldn't confirm that were up on the bank, you know, with a Chuck Mawinney hole right between the forehead. What's funny I didn't even think about that whenever I was reading the book that those 16 were not part of his confirmed kill list. And, and yeah, you're right because they're in a rushing river. And even though they were shot in a shallow part, these, these guys were in water up to their, you know, their waist or whatever, cause they were holding their, their rifles above their helmet, the Viet Cong were, and then they just went on down the river. But again, like that, as you mentioned, we, we have no idea how many lives were saved. Just think about it this way. Yes. He made 16 shots. And he was 16 for 16. He did it in under 30 seconds and the Viet Cong didn't cross. But what if him and his spotter didn't even set up there? What if they set up somewhere else? Because all these shots were within 100 yards, so relatively easy shots. But you've been there. If you've ever deer hunted or elk hunted with a rifle or something like that, it doesn't matter if it's within 100 yards. You're still shaking. And and guess what? Your life's not even on the line. The animal doesn't even know you're there. And no one's going to die if you shoot and miss. But he doesn't miss any of these shots. And as you mentioned, he didn't get any credit. Now, I will say, you've already mentioned Carlos Hathcock. And what's funny is when I first got this book, I thought it was a book about Carlos Hathcock. Because I was like, oh, yeah, he's he's the, the most deadly United States Marine Corps sniper of all time. And then I looked at the first page and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Of course it, it would be Chuck. But I guess Carlos Hathcock would be considered the, the more famous of the two, whether that matters or not. But there was a lot of debate at one time as to whether or not Chuck was actually the guy that had the most confirmed kills because Ch- Carlos Hathcock was 93, I believe, and those were his confirmed kills. But yeah. how did that get cleared up? How did it get cleared up that actually Chuck did kill more people, confirmed kills while in Vietnam than Carlos Hathcock? Well, it was fortunate how it happened. Um, when he was outed by the book Dear Mom, the his spotter that wrote that book told in his book that Chuck Mawinney was his first sniper he worked with and when he left he had 101 kills and so that sparked a big controversy of experts in the rifle gun field military everybody always knew Carlos was the best and here's this guy who's this new guy that's claiming this and well, so the, there was a pair of brothers authors that wrote these books about Carlos, and they contacted Chuck and and uh, pretty much called him a liar, and and uh, about having 101 kills. And Chuck says, "Well, you're right. It wasn't 101. It was 103." Mm-hmm. And uh, so that poured gas on the fire. Well, fortunately, um, Chuck's platoon leader kept track of him, and they get. Uh, Everyone, when you're a sniper, you carry a, a booklet of, of kill sheets. And on that kill sheet, they uh, you put down the, everything you know about the body. 
You know, if he looked like he might have been an officer or if he was starving to death or what kind of gun he had, what direction was he walking, where was it? Because, and then those would go to the, um, they would go to the base and, and, and then they're looked over to try for people to try to see where this movement's coming and going of troops. Okay. So this Mark kept them and, uh, or kept he kept a record of them, and yeah. he by he and he had the proof, and so finally everybody agreed with that that Chuck did have a hundred and three, and and it's it it was just it was a good thing that that somebody was doing their, their work, you know. But and Chuck early on he was you know he was getting a lot of kills. A lot more than everybody else, and and they had a on the sniper platoon door. They had a they were keeping track of you know Chuck McWinnie. He's got forty nine, and so and so's got one or eight or something. And Chuck asked him to take that down because it was it was making people too competitive and too taking too many risks. He thought and. Uh, and it didn't mean anything to him, you know. I mean, I mean, he, I, he, it meant something to him that he was doing his good job. He was doing what he was came here to do, and and he'll tell you he enjoyed it. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a supreme hunt, you know, when you're somebody shooting back at you. When I mean that was his job, and that seemed to be he kind of almost had this like all shucks approach to it because it's like, hey, this is my job, this is what I'm going to do, and this is I'm going to do it to the, you know, absolute best of my ability while I'm doing it. And then when he wasn't in the military anymore, he just went on and did the same thing. You mentioned him working with the Forest Service, and that's just kind of the guy he was. He's a guy of a, of a certain constitution. But I guess the question that most of my listeners would probably think at this point is, so what does a retired legendary sniper do? Because he retired from the military and then he's now retired from his civilian job or whatever. So what does he do? What is he up to now? What's he doing? Well, he smokes a lot of cigarettes too. And that's one of the reasons he's just got a wonderful voice. I trade him. I'd love to have his voice. It's just kind of a gravelly, you know, and, uh, but he, he lives so calm and, him and his wife, they had uh, three boys, and they live in an old house in Baker City, Oregon, with wood heat. And it's cold there, really cold. I lived there for four, 20 years. And he has a little man cave out in the back, you know, and he got, but he, you'll never see anything inside the house in the hallway. You see three or four things on the wall about, um, about some kind of a record or, um, when he got this medal or that medal, but but he doesn't flaunt any of it. There's nothing anywhere that you'd never know. If you ask him about something, then he'll go around and he'll get past the Harley Davidson and get back there and pull something out of a shelf and he'll say, well, this is that. And, and he drives, uh, he just doesn't spend any money. <laughs> uh, yeah, he doesn't show off about it all he's got a lot of friends uh, i guess he just still being chuck you know 
Well, uh, it seems like it's just one of those genuine American heroes that is just a guy that, you know, some of the most humble people I've ever met in my life, Jim, were people who there, there's one guy in particular, he was a former mentor of mine. He is the scientist. His name's uh, Dr. Dwight Adams. He was the scientist that him and his team at the FBI discovered how they could use DNA evidence for court cases. And so whenever we talk about court cases and, you know, rapes or murders or something like that, and they find the murderer via DNA, he's the reason why. I probably knew that man for two or three years before I ever knew that he was that because he never talked about it. Just so unbelievably humble. I knew a guy, Eddie Penny has been on the show several times. He was in seal team six. I knew he was a seal, but I knew him for probably three or four years before I knew he was a part of uh, the development group or seal team six. It's just because these guys, they're, they're to a degree, they're quiet professionals. They had a job to do and they did it. And we all benefited. All of us civilians here in the United States benefited from guys like Chuck, guys like Eddie from going overseas and, and taking care of business in the way that they did, regardless of whether or not you agree with the war or whether it was fought under, uh, you know, fought under false pretenses or any of those types of things that doesn't really come into play. But, but Jim, I really did appreciate the book. I'm glad you have a very quick writing style. You kind of cut to the chase, but you still feel like there's a lot of detail in there, but I I really, really enjoyed it and I appreciate all the time that you gave us today, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I, uh, I think we, I, you're, uh, you're pretty good at asking questions. I guess you have done this before, huh? This isn't my first rodeo, but yeah, you know, this is what happens whenever you sit in a room and talk to yourself by yourself for, for years and years on end, you end up asking some questions, but it's all out of curiosity. It's all stuff that I would want to know or stuff that I would think the audience would want to know. So I, I appreciate the compliment, but Jim Lindsay, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Jim Lindsay. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today is a link to where you can buy your own copy of The Sniper, The Untold Story of the Marine Corps' Greatest Marksman of All Time by Jim Lindsay. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.